and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, one of the most enduring exports ever to come out of Japan is the word kamikaze, which was never used better than in this song by Australian band The Hoodoo Gurus in 1984. <laughs> They gave me a plane and I couldn't fly it. Well, somewhere around 3,000 kamikaze pilots loaded with bombs and extra fuel deliberately, uh, deliberately and suicidally flew themselves into enemy targets in various battles across the Pacific during World War II. Their ultimate objective was, among other things, to destroy Australia by isolating us from our superpower ally, the United States, across the ocean. The kamikazes failed, of course, but that isn't stopping Australian Energy Minister Chris Bowen from embarking on a kamikaze flight of his own in the near future, which, truth be told, has a slightly higher chance of success. Bowen is due to fly to Tokyo soon for high-level talks with his Japanese counterpart Yuki, Yuki Sadamitsu to try to convince him that Australian gas should be less reliable and more expensive because of, you know, climate change. He may as well fly there on a plane powered by solar panels. The Japanese have already expressed deep concern that Australia, which supplies 40% of the, of the gas that, among other things, makes Tokyo one of the most brightly lit cities in the world, is planning to make its gas exports more expensive and supplies less reliable. Japan is also a huge investor in Australian gas projects and will feel the sting of increased penalties should those projects not help Bowen hit his suicidal net zero targets. Quote, if this issue cannot be resolved, this might undermine long-trusted relations, Satomitsu told the Wall Street Journal last week. This is the kind of mission that requires extraordinary diplomatic experience and skill, which is uh, sadly lacking in our current federal government. Penny Wong, the foreign minister, who is probably the best of a bad bunch, has thrown up her hands and said, this one's all on you, Chris. She told the Sydney Morning Herald from the ASEAN conference in Jakarta on the weekend, quote, I understand that Minister Bowen will be traveling in the very near future to Tokyo, and I know he looks forward to discussing with Japan our commitment to being a reliable energy partner, as well as our shared transition to net zero. We want to work with Japan to make sure that both of those objectives, that is our commitment to being a secure, reliable partner in energy provision, and also our shared transition to net zero, is something that we can work on together. Well, that's a bit like asking US sailors to help guide Japanese pilots to land on their aircraft carrier somewhere off the Philippines in about 1944. The evidence that Bowen is going to crash our economy, our energy sector, is now overwhelming. 
As Rebecca Weiser and renowned geophysicist Michael Aston explained on Spectator TV, right here on ADH last Friday night, the Net Zero Australia Partnership released its mobilisation report this week. Uh, the lead author is Professor Robin Batterham. He's a very distinguished scientist. Uh, he's the former Chief Scientist of Australia. He's a Professor of Engineering at Melbourne University. He has a track record in industry and he was the head of global innovation at Rio Tinto. So he's got a real depth of expertise, both in a practical sense and in a theoretical sense. He's described net zero as an immense challenge. He says Australia will have to spend $1,300 billion on renewable energy and that's just over the next decade. $1,300 billion, that's $1.3 trillion. Uh, just in a decade. That's a staggering amount of money. The amount of money needed for the renewable energy version of our grid, which is this $1,300 billion cost, that, that, that cost is truly enormous and it represents a very, very large challenge indeed. And it demands a great deal of conversation as to whether the purely renewable uh, system is the way to go or whether we have to consider other options like um, uh, coal or nuclear and in what mix. So much for the cost of alleviating climate change then. But what if climate change isn't even real? Well, I'm glad you asked. Dr. John Clauser, a joint recipient of the Nobel Prize for Physics last year, recently released a statement saying, quote, misguided climate science has metastasized into massive shock journalistic pseudoscience. In turn, the pseudoscience has become a scapegoat for a wide variety of other unrelated ills. It has been promoted and extended by similarly misguided business, marketing agents, politicians, journalists, government agencies, and environmentalists. In my opinion, there is no real climate crisis. There is, however, a very real problem with providing a decent standing of living to the world's expanding population, especially given an associated energy crisis. Australia, one of the richest nations in the world for energy resources, is currently feeling the cost of that energy crisis, thanks to Bowen's insane policies. The planes some of the kamikazes flew in World War II were called Zeros, which is conspicuously similar to the net zero that Bowen is hoping to hit. But most of the kamikaze's planes were euphemistically called cherry blossoms, as the hoodoo gurus reminded us using this footage that vividly represents, to me at least, Bowen landing in Tokyo sometime soon.
you've probably heard about the exciting new trend of banks closing the accounts of people whose opinions are conspicuously contrary to the mainstream corporate narrative. Nigel Farage, the former leader of the Brexit movement in Britain, and now one of Britain's most prominent and patriotic conservative commentators on GB News, had his account closed by Coots Bank recently. Coots said it was because Farage didn't reach the minimum deposit required to do business with it. But it has since transpired that other clients have not been punished for falling below the same threshold. And seven other banks have since refused to take Farage's money. There have been other victims too. Dr. Leslie Soares, OBE, the Equality and Human Rights Commissioner for Scotland, was cancelled by the Bank of Scotland recently. Soares is a prominent defender of women's rights, which would give her many state and federal Australian counterparts cause for relief, given that they are conspicuously quiet on that and many other unfashionable human rights transgressions. And the charity, British charity Families Need Fathers, as well as the British Free Speech Union, among other organisations, have also had their bank accounts cancelled. This phenomenon is getting worse, as West Australian writer Rocco Loyakano writes in the current edition of The Spectator Australia. Quote, now banks have taken their puritanical war on freedom of speech to a new, more sinister level by adopting the Nero approach and specifically targeting Christian organisations. The banks are using a European Union law regarding, quote, politically exposed persons to do what would seem to the man in the street as vile and unjustified prejudice. There are moves in the UK to scrap the politically exposed persons laws, Loyakano writes, but the message remains clear. Quote, Behave yourself and you can live a measure of a normal life. Challenge the approved ideology and you will be punished, including switching off access to your own money and the Marxist commissars who enforce this new cultural revolution dare to call themselves progressive and tolerant. Well, one Australian to feel this progressiveness and tolerance is my next guest, Maria Z, whose account with ING Bank was inexplicably, inexplicably closed in March this year. Maria, welcome to the show. Hi, Fred. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour. Maria, for the benefit of the viewers, you're very active in your own, on your own media website and on various social media platforms, but uh, as you've mentioned to me earlier, you're, you're sometimes hard to find. Um, so for the benefit of people who haven't discovered you yet, give us a bit of a background about how you wound up with your own media company and what drove you to be so outspoken. Sure. Well, it really started at the beginning of the mandates, if you will. I was working as a state sales manager for the largest non-for-profit disability employment agency in Australia. I was very convicted about the fact that not me, but my staff who I was responsible for were actually asking to uh, disadvantage Australians, people with disabilities and medical conditions to participate in unjustifiable mandates. And so it really wasn't sitting right with my conscience, Fred. I was already speaking out at the time. And, uh, and as a result, 
sort of uh, started to grow somewhat of a following and people were asking me to start independent media. And so I responded to what the public wanted. They wanted someone to speak for them. And uh, and Z Media evolved out of that, really. And since then, we've grown into one of the largest platforms in Australia, really. But Maria, what is it about you that drove, that made you so determined to, uh, you know, speak out about what you were seeing? Uh, first of all, when you tell someone that they can't talk about something or you silence people and you silence doctors specifically in the middle of a pandemic, Something's very wrong there. And I was hearing about doctors who were being raided, who were having uh, their licenses cancelled for just giving a different opinion to that of the official mainstream media narrative. We didn't hear any other sides. We just heard one story. And apart from that, I was involved with a documentary series talking about adverse reactions at the time. And we weren't hearing that in the mainstream media at all. And unfortunately, for the majority of Australians, they don't know where to go for information other than what the legacy media, which is what I call them now, rather than mainstream Fred, uh, were presenting. And so I felt responsible as a human being to really rise up and, and start sharing some of that information with Australians who wanted a different opinion. And as a result, interviewed some of the most prominent doctors in the world, Dr. Peter McCullough. I mean, I've lost count of how many interviews I've done with him, the most published in his field um, in history, really, uh, over 600 peer-reviewed publications to his name. And, you know, other doctors like him who were really experts and just had questions or had different data to what we were seeing all of the time, um, it shoved down our throats, really. And so uh, it, it was the lack of, of public debate Fred, that really, really bothered me. That's um, that's not science, in my opinion. Well, one, lack of public debate is one way of putting it, but there was active resistance against you actually saying anything at all, wasn't there? T tell me about how what it was like in those early days. So there's a thing called shadow banning. As much as the big tech platforms will tell you it doesn't exist, it absolutely does. And I can uh, evidence that purely by the fact that I have almost 90,000 followers on Instagram and I'm lucky if I get 1,000 people seeing my story. It gets pushed down all the way to the, the end of the people that they're following. Um, some of my posts, you can see the engagement um, dropping. If I was tracking, I was gaining about... Um, Oh, over a thousand followers a week at the peak when it was actually growing and then as soon as Instagram decided to squash me it, it, it actually started unfollowing people people were coming to me and saying I'm, I'm constantly having to re-follow you you keep disappearing I can't even search your name that is the same on Twitter two accounts have been cancelled on Twitter we're on our third um, YouTube has repeatedly suspended me. Instagram, I've had to have three separate accounts. I've been on a permanent ban of sorts since April of 2022 on Facebook because of some of the things that I've said, which really are just doctors saying different things to the doctors we hear on TV, Fred. Well, just quickly before we get on to your banking uh, problems, tell me in very in summary what what were you saying about the the vaccines and have you since been vindicated yes i can't say that there was anything that any of these doctors were saying that hasn't come to 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 the public knowledge of of being true for example that they didn't stop transmission or that they didn't actually that they weren't effective uh, in the ways that we were being told uh, also that 
for example, Dr. Ryan Cole, a very prominent pathologist in the United States who specializes in, in cancer, uh, he'd seen an explosion of cancer patients um, uh, coming through his doors. Um, you know, th- and now we know that um, there are certain links that have been found through peer-reviewed studies of the COVID injections causing cancer, uh, what they call now calling turbo cancer, although, of course, we could blame that on climate change, Fred. <laughs> That's, yeah, don't get me started on climate change. We've got to stay focused, Maria. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about your banking. Your, um, uh, so on March 9, you received an email from your bank, ING, saying your account was about to be closed. What, what did that email say and what happened then? Yes, so uh, one of the things that we report on extensively, Fred, is the World Economic Forum and all of the varying agendas that come out of there. For example, Klaus Schwab saying that he's penetrated the world's cabinets, the governments of the world, and that basically his Marxist ideology has has uh, penetrated all of those governments. So uh, it's important to note that ING uh, is actually a partner of the World Economic Forum. So Perhaps this is why this has happened to me. I don't know for sure, Fred. But yes, on the 9th of March, I received an email, which I thought may be a scam, saying that my accounts were going to be shut and I had a week to move my funds. That would be the 16th of March. I called them to see whether that was whether it actually came from them. And they said, yes, it did. And, uh, and we're sorry, you're going to have to move your funds. I've requested the reason as to why this occurred. And they said, sorry, uh, we cannot provide you with a reason. We don't have access to that information. This is, by the way, the customer escalation line. When you actually go to find out why you were debanked, this is the people that are supposed to be able to explain it to you. They didn't have an answer for me. I note that probably about a month before that, I uh, was having difficulty accessing the uh, cash out of the ATM with my bank card. I called ING at the time. Only two ATMs in my entire uh, surrounding Uh, suburbs were working for me at this point. And they assured me that there was nothing wrong with my account. It wasn't my banking practices. It may just be a faulty card and I didn't want to wait for a replacement. So I said, no problem, I'll keep using those two ABNs. So I had confirmation about a month before that there was nothing about my banking practices that was alarming to them. So when I when I was on this call with them asking about why they were debanking me, I posed the question, uh, do you debank people due to their political views? Noting that ING have done this in the past when it comes to certain public figures. There was a radio silence and I was placed on hold and the woman came back and essentially said, we have no further information for you. We did the right thing as a media organisation and contacted their PR team and said, you know, I'd like to know because I'm going to report on this. It's going to go international, which it did, by the way, the Gateway Pundit, Armstrong Economics. Many, many people across the world were shocked by this. Why is the government, uh, sorry, the why are the banks debanking journalists? And, uh, and they responded and said that due to customer confidentiality, they're not able to disclose the reasons, despite the fact that I'm the customer, Fred. So that was all that I got told. So I, again, you know, um, posed the question to them, was this, uh, a political reason, and they would not answer the question. Well, I'm impressed that you are able to recall it with a smile now, Maria, but what was it like at the time? It must have felt kind of frightening. Let me tell you what was frightening about this, Fred. Uh, we just prior, right, right right after the debanking happened, uh, there was a, um, or right around that time, there was a report released by A Current Affair which was focusing on the tragedy, absolute tragedy that happened in Weambla. And they were, as part of that uh, so-called investigation, which really raised more questions than answers about that very unfortunate situation, 
They included a part uh, in their report about people that are radicalising the Australian people towards domestic terrorism, and I was implicated in that report. There was actually footage of me. So what was more terrifying was that the, the, the mainstream media was misrepresenting me as a domestic terrorist simply for reporting on government corruption, COVID crimes, the links with the WEF, and all of these topics that the Australian people definitely have an interest in labelling me as a domestic terrorist around the time of my debanking. I can tell you openly, Fred, I am a law-abiding citizen. I've never committed a crime other than telling the truth, and yet it seems the, t the timing was very, very um, interesting. So uh, in terms of terrifying, not terrifying for me personally, I was, um, I was angered by the injustice, but it should be terrifying to every single Australian and every person in the world how quickly the mainstream media could label you as something and have the banks collude with them. Uh, and, you know, this really does uh, spell disaster when they, if they successfully implement their program of central bank digital currencies, which will not only give people a week to find a new bank account, which they did in this instance, it'll be instant for people. Fred, anyone who disagrees with the government? Well, regular viewers of this show know about the warnings about uh, central bank digital currencies. Not only will they close your account, they can simply program, because it's programmable currency, they can simply make that money disappear. Now, so, you know, uh, from your account, there is some sort of uh, um, a, a correlation between you appearing in the mainstream media and a mainstream or a large bank uh, acting in, pos possibly acting in response. This is a frightening uh, occurrence for an ordinary citizen, but you would hope in a country like Australia, there are avenues where you can uh, appeal for some sort of human rights. I mean, did you approach any politicians or the Human Rights Commission, for example? Uh, perhaps I should have, Fred. Um, maybe that's a course of action I really should have considered. I looked at the timeline of events. I looked at the, the current affair report and what happened to me, and I thought, right, well, I, I feel this may be a targeting of me. Uh, which just essentially made me double down and investigate the globalist effects on our government even further. I'm sure they're not happy about that. They would have loved me to shut up. Yeah, I, I don't disparage you for not going down that road because uh, the, most politicians in Australia and the Human Rights Commission uh, don't really show much concern for ordinary people, ordinary citizens in a situation like yours. Um, Again, the, you know, similarly, the, the social media giants, I mean, you've been, you've been cancelled by nearly all of those. How are you going with Twitter now? I mean, surely Twitter under Elon Musk is a little bit more tolerant. Uh, I've, I've been told by a lot of people in my audience that they can't actually find me on Twitter. I'm actually still shadow banned. In fact, very interestingly, there's an impersonating account. It's actually a scammer trying to engage people in financial scams. So I reported that to Twitter uh, and they asked me to verify who I was by uh, emailing them from my official domain, Z Media, which I did. I emailed them from our domain email address. And then they said, oh, that's not enough for us. We want your official government ID. We want a copy of that uh, to prove that you are who you say you are, despite the fact that there's activity on my Twitter, there's engagement with our audience. The scammer or impo imposter only has one post, which is to engage people in financial scams. There's no Z Media content there. Uh, and so I told Twitter to shove it, basically, because they're not getting my government ID. That's what social media giants want to do. They want to link your digital ID with your social media behaviour so that in future... Uh, again, for Australians listening to this, they will be able to instantly shut off your money like they did to me, but it won't be a week's notice. It'll be instant because they don't like what you've said. 
and I just won't, uh, I won't comply with that, Fred. Well, I'm, I'm happy to report that you've since found a, another bank and your business is thriving, it seems. Um, how, how, how is Z Media going? Well, we are, uh, we've amassed a very large following despite the amount of times that they've tried to squash us combined across our platforms. We have over 240,000 people in our audience. We're also contributors to some of the largest uh, alternative media platforms in the world, uh, specifically in the United States. We're also on Roku for uh, countries that can access that um, on, on their t smart TVs. So Z Media is not going anywhere. We haven't stopped. Uh, and we've certainly expanded our relationships with some of the most prominent truth speakers in the world and we'll continue to do that. We're not intimidated by these scare tactics, Fred. We're not intimidated by being labelled as something that we're not. Uh, you know, you can you can call me whatever you want on a current affair. Journalistic integrity is of paramount importance to me. And so whilst others don't practice it, we will continue to. You mentioned the World Economic Forum before. To what extent do you think the globalists like the World Economic Forum have infiltrated Australian politics? Well, you can just look at uh, Senator Antic, for example, who put forward a motion to have them disclose their ties to the World Economic Forum, and a majority of them voted no. Now, my argument to that is, okay, well, if you have nothing to hide, first and foremost, why would you vote no? Secondly, if you're proud of your ties to the World Economic Forum and there's nothing sinister about this organisation, why would you not want to scream that from the rooftops? They're making the world a better place and I'm contributing to it but yet they did not want to disclose their ties to them. So that tells me, uh, Fred, that we're in a very, very dangerous position, particularly when you look at the Marxist ideology of so many of these politicians, uh, mainly in the Labor Party and the Greens. You know, The Voice is one example of, uh, you must agree with us or else you're a racist. Well, hang on a second. Uh, what about debate? What about having an opinion in a democracy? Democracy is the exchange of ideas and the people uh, electing who they want in place or, or the people telling the people that they've elected what they want done. But that isn't the system in this country anymore and it very much is reminiscent of uh, Schwab's ideology where you know you'll own nothing you'll be happy because we say so and you're going to eat the bugs and oh by the way China's fantastic we want everyone to be like China who lock their citizens in burning buildings in the name of a virus uh, and watch them burnt, burn to death and Klaus Schwab says that's a great idea so does Trudeau uh, and I dare say the government of the day here in Australia might feel the same way. What should ordinary Australians do to push back against this, Maria? Well, there's one particular issue that is very pressing at the moment, Fred. You might have heard of the WHO Treaty or the International Health Regulations Amendments. Uh, right now, we have unelected representatives going to these World Health Assembly meetings, signing away our sovereignty to the World Health Organization, uh, basically making them the dictators of Australia's health decisions. It's very, very alarming, and we know what a poor job they did during COVID, uh, not to mention the person at the helm of the WHO and his very, very shady past. So uh, I think that people need to be very involved right now in the political sphere. While we still have the ability to put pressure on MPs, put pressure on senators, they need to not stop doing that. They need to talk about these important um, issues such as Australia uh, uh, conceding to the WHO being the master of all, uh, for lack of a better word, um, and they definitely need to push back on things that they don't agree with. You know, don't be intimidated by being called a racist or a terrorist in my case, uh, because you know that 
that you're not coming from a place that is in any way, shape or form condoning violence or anything. You just want to see democracy in action. So while we still have it, let's use it because they have said, and when I say they, I mean the globalists, that past 2024, we won't have any more elections. It'll all be AI deciding for us. And that is terrifying. Maria, it's very clear that you are definitely not a terrorist. We love your passion here and we love your your uncompromising pursuit of the truth. It's something we have in common right here at ADH. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for all your work, Fred. Much appreciated. That's outspoken independent journalist Maria Z of zmedia.com. That's z-triple-e-media.com. Well, staying on the theme of banking, Bettina Arndt, the Sydney writer who works tirelessly defending the rights of men against false accusations in the era of Me Too, has uncovered a disturbing new way for women to wreak revenge on men through their finances. And Bettina joins me now. Bettina, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Bettina, you've discovered that Australian banks are now able to punish what they call financial abusers. Now, should a bank deem a person a financial abuser, what penalty, firstly, before we go into the definition of what an abuser is, what penalty can they impose? They have announced they're going to cut, well, this is particularly the National Australia Bank, NAB, it's the one first cab off the rank, if you like, and they've announced they're going to cut off men from their accounts. They could freeze their accounts or deny them access to their accounts if they regard them as financial abusers. Well, before, sorry to interrupt, but before, you, before you go on, you say men. Why is this just a man thing? Well, it shouldn't be, of course, because uh, even the... The, the banks writing about this and the documents they've produced on this, they acknowledge that if you look at our official statistics from the ABS, there are plenty of males who are also victims of financial abuse, but if their documentation is all about targeting men. You don't see it. You see endless miserable-looking um, women in their, in their various, you know, articles they're producing and so on, you never see a single image of a male victim. But they're making it, making it pretty obvious. And they're, you know, like Combank gave half a million dollars to the Gendered Violence Prevention Network at UNSW. I mean, this is very clearly uh, the latest feminist weapon to attack men. And uh, I don't really gonna much see much this working the other way around very much at all. Yeah, well, so the 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 the, pen, the penalties include closing your account and and freezing you from access to your money. Now, so let's go to what constitutes a a financial abuser. How do they define it? Oh, well, it's about um, there's a, there's a whole list of questions that could come in here. Um, but, of course, they put, the point is that someone needs to accuse their partner of being a financial abuser, meaning that they're not providing for them in the way they could, they're not delivering, giving them access to their all their accounts. You know, if you've got a wife who's very fond of shopping and you don't allow her access to all your bank accounts, I mean, that could be a financial abuse. Uh, and they're saying very specifically... It sounds like a traditional marriage, but go on. <laughs> go on. You know can be. But the, the Australian Banking Association says they don't need any proof of this. Uh, no evidence is required, which, of course, is true of domestic violence generally. 
uh, that you do, you can make an accusation of domestic violence anywhere in the country without any proof whatsoever and get your husband very effectively locked up and taken away from the home and <laughs> denied contact with his children and whatever it is. And this is just fitting in nicely into that previous pattern um, of accu an accusation is enough. So and this is yet, the... So, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but so the Australian, just to be clear, the Australian Banking Association has said that anyone who is accused of financial abuse can then, without any legal investigation or proof, can then have his, because it's always going to be him, uh, bank accounts closed. Is that correct? That, that is absolutely right. And they've announced it very proudly that this is their new initiative. This is what's going to happen. I mean, we, I don't, you may have seen that Nigel Farage uh, has apparently been cut off from his bank accounts in the UK, and there's been a big fuss there over that. Um, we saw, you know, the truckers in Canada had, having their uh, accounts frozen. Lots of people are finding you know, prominent journalists are finding they're cut off from their PayPal accounts. I mean, it's, it seems to be a growing tendency to use banks to exert social and political control. And yeah. this is simply the latest. And this is just more of the, you know, what I always call the domestic violence industry, which is by far the most effective fundraising effort by the feminists. Uh, and they're very effectively controlled industry and I, after industry and set up more and more perks for someone who claims domestic violence. You know, you can get domestic violence leave. Does an employer ever dare ask what's the proof that someone's a victim of domestic violence? Of course they don't. They have to believe women. Well, we've just, uh, we've just seen, sorry to interrupt, we, I, just, I just want to add to that list that you, were, um, you, you made a second ago. I mean, there's, there's no shortage of people who are being targeted by the banks for various reasons. And we've just had Maria Z, the independent journalist, a lot like yourself, Bettina, actually a, a, a very uncompromising and uh, a determined pursuer, pursuer of the truth, independent journalist, who, uh, who had her accounts, uh, her bank accounts closed mm -hmm. in March. Now that was, Possibly, we don't have any explanation from the bank involved, but it was possibly related to the fact that she is quite conservative. Now, so that's one aspect, one demographic, if you like, that is being targeted uh, for financial mm -hmm. punishment. And now we are seeing men or, you know, men who are accused by their partners or former partners. Now, you said the Australian Banking Association is, all, is cool with this that if a woman complains, uh, then, um, then all bets are off. And you mentioned earlier the National Australia Bank. Now, are they the first to say, yes, we will, uh, we will exercise this right to punish men for financial abuse? Is that right? Yeah, they've announced this, proudly announced this is what they're going to do. Um, ComBank has said that they'll be, you know, they'll be following up shortly with a similar program. And Westpac apparently is going to head in the same direction. So it may end up going across all our banks. We're not sure. Well, uh, but it's just fascinating that they make this announcement, Fred, and no one says boo. No one says what's going on here. I mean, yeah. they just no one accept, with No one except you, Bettina. So thank goodness for you. <laughs> but what, what, I, what I need to ask is what are they hoping to achieve with this? I mean, are they hoping 
to gain more customers because they can, you know, shut down men? What's the, what's the objective? I don't understand. Well, look, obviously there are serious problems of financial abuse and, and in fact, the statistics would show it's the, the bigger problem is elder abuse, where people who have control of their elderly parents' money misuse it and, you know, don't look after the parents and use the money for themselves, that sort of thing. And that is where the main effort should go, obviously. Um, but the, the, although that's mentioned in all, all the documentation the banks are producing, it's very clear that they are, m most of the banks seem to be much more keen on pursuing the interpersonal domestic violence aspect of this, uh, which is rife for false accusations. Well, and that's what bothers me. Yeah, well, it bothers, bothers us too. Now, it seems that the New South Wales Parliament, under the previous um, supposedly liberal government, passed legislation that criminalised the act of coercive control. Now, this is similar yeah. to what you described earlier. You know, a, might be a woman who loves spending money down at uh, the local Gucci salon or Gucci boutique, I should say, and uh, and the hard-earning, you know, the, the, the breadwinner is saying, no, you can't go buying handbags every week or whatever. This is normal yeah. interpersonal relations. And until five minutes ago, it was actually a source of some humour because women love spending money. That's, you know, it's what they do. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. And men love earning money and there's nothing wrong with that either. There's just a little bit of personal compromise involved in the relationship. It's got nothing to do with the New South Wales Parliament and it's got nothing to do with the bank. Now, tell us about this legislation that got passed in the previous Liberal government. Well, that's about, you know, coercive control, which is legislation that's being introduced across Australia and New South Wales being the first, and that's criminalising this behaviour that they describe as coercive control, which is really about, um, it's, it's hard to know where to describe it because it's to start because they it's about controlling someone in, their, in your relationship. But a, a, a feminist academic in America has made this up and he claims it's something that only men do to women. And, in fact, if you look at we, the sort of behaviour that's described in their, their various definitions, it's all about emotional abuse. It's all about controlling behaviour. And we all know if anyone's really good at that, of course, it's women. I mean, we know exactly which buttons to, pre to press if we want to drive our partners crazy. And women generally know that. And so what we have in New South Wales is it's really very funny, Fred, we have a situation where the legislation has been passed and they're stalling and they've announced they're not going to actually roll it out until 2024 because they're worried about it being used against women. And what they're doing is literally installing female police in all the police stations and they're making sure women don't get misidentified as perpetrators. Um, because they suddenly seem to have got cold feet about that aspect of it. This is, but this, course, this right? is the kind of things yeah. that parliaments, uh, politicians are, are putting themselves in this trap constantly all these days because they are constantly passing laws with subjective language in it. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean that's the problem here, and, right? Absolutely. And, and you, you know, you, 
everybody, there's a whole lot of papers on coercive control. None of them agree on what they're actually talking about. They all use slightly different definitions. And in fact, there's been a big study in University of Central Lancaster in, in the UK on male victims of coercive control, which shows in terms of this financial abuse that males are just as likely as, as female victims of coercive control to be controlled financially, to be with women who take all their earnings and won't let them have access to them. Or, I mean, the other interesting flip side of this is women who say, who won't contribute to the family earnings, who refuse to go to work and make the men do all, you know, take on this burden entirely of earning the money. Now, can you, I just love the idea, imagine if the banks went out and tried to claim that women who don't go out to work and contribute to the family income are exerting financial abuse, which is perfectly logical. Yes. Um, but but it's not going to happen, is it? No, that's right. Well, let's just play devil's advocate for a second. Are there legitimate circumstances when this kind of coercive control exists? Oh, no doubt. And if you look at the... The, the documents that the banks are producing with the, these miserable women, that a lot of them are from exotic ethnic backgrounds, you could say. Um, and obviously there are communities where women live in relationships which are very tightly controlled with very dominating macho males and don't have much control of any aspect of their lives, let alone their finances. And, you know, I, I think they've produced, they can, you know, the, the documents produce some pretty convincing case histories of women who've been really badly treated financially as in every other way, and they need protection. But, you know, they, of course, then the feminists always then take the big leap and say, well, this is happening everywhere and it applies in any relationship and it's not just confined to a particular ethnic or social group. And exactly. They, they are so afraid of, of, of uh, fine-tuning the demographics, just, in, just as they are in the case of domestic violence, which correlates right. with uh, socioeconomic status and certain, uh, uh, shall we say, ethnic groups. Now, this is all being encouraged by the Centre for Women's Economic Safety. Who's behind that, Bettina? Yeah. Oh, there's a, there's a whole range of um, little groups that have been set up to, to address this problem and getting vast amounts of money thrown at them to study, you know, financial abuse and so on. I'm not quite who, sh sure who they are, uh, but you'll see. They're beginning to churn out the paper. This is the latest thing. And they're churning out the papers on financial abuse and, you know, doing the groundwork so that when this, the cases start to emerge, they, they can have warned people. This well, talk about, yeah, talk about groundwork. I mean, how, how's this quote from a, uh, this is a, from a report by the uh, Centre for Women's Economic Safety. How's this quote? Consider the potential to develop a process to make an adverse credit report for a perpetrator of financial abuse, very subjective language, I've got to add, which can be made concurrent to correction for victim survivor so that there is a material consequence that impacts on the ability to get future credit. Oh, that is frightening, Bettina. Oh, I mean, what our whole system... Yeah. yeah, go on, go on. Yeah. And I was going to say, what angry ex-wife could resist that one? <laughs> <laughs> you not only cut him off from the towns, you stuff his credit rating. I'm like, that's just perfect, isn't it? Yeah, it's not the only thing you're cutting off, Bettina, but anyway... The, uh, but I mean, our whole our whole system, our whole legal system, our social system is based on the idea that if you do something wrong, you pay the price. And there are 
It's, it's an agreed system. Like, you know, you want to take the risk of committing a crime or doing something wrong, you know what the penalty is. But now all these sort of, th these, these non-judicial organisations are acquiring the power to impose penalties on vague crimes and the penalties go on forever. It's really frightening, isn't it? And these huge corporations buy into this rubbish, you know, and think virtue signalling and thinking I mean, they think that they're going to win kudos by setting up something like this. It doesn't occur to them. I would have thought more of their accounts are actually owned by men than women. But I suppose it's because no one ever complains. You yeah. know, no one ever does, dares say this is a dreadful thing you're doing, banks. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that absolutely targeted on social media. Yeah. For, for, you know, pushing this new weapon to demonise men out into our community. Well, speaking and of we which, yeah. To get out of that bank, you know. Yeah, speaking, why should we let them get away with it? Why should we? That's right. I'll, I'll just finish off with a quote from you and I'll get a comment to elaborate. Uh, but this is from your latest piece on Substack. Quote, this whole outrageous exercise is simply the latest feminist weapon for targeting men introduced without government oversight, parliamentary scrutiny or community con consultation. Now, that's really well put, Bettina, and it's very frightening. Yeah. And, you know, we see this in so many aspects of uh, this control for feminists for you, uh, exerting on our society and they never get called out. They don't, Our conservative yeah. media, they talk about trans, they talk about things that affect a tiny percent of the population and this is something that could potentially affect half the population and they don't dare tackle it. Well, thank goodness that you are, Bettina. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, Fred, nice to talk to you. That's Bettina Arndt. If you want to read more of Bettina's work, go to Bettina Arndt, that's Bettina, B-E-T-T-I-N-A-A-R-N-D-T.com. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website, adh.tv, or app, or our app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pello, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.